Hello and welcome to The Rev Up, the podcast where we talk about all things uh, marketing and sales and revenue growth. Uh, today, I'm actually joined by an old friend, uh, somebody who was a former client, somebody where I was a former client of theirs, uh, Emily McLeod, uh, who is the co-founder and director of WOW Recruitment, uh, which is a Sydney-based consultancy uh, operating across sales, marketing, digital, and business support in terms of the types of roles that they hire for. Um, in five very eventful years, uh, including obviously across the pandemic, uh, Emily and her team uh, have really won the trust of some of Australia's most recognisable brands when it comes to finding great talent for them, uh, and at some serious scale, right? Um, Emily's a very impressive entrepreneur, uh, to the point that you know this this what was a, a one person band uh, has grown substantially uh, and actually ended up winning some awards. There's a, an awards uh, series in the recruitment industry called the Tiaras. Uh, wow, recruitment actually won the Rising Star Award uh, in 2021 and the best small recruitment company to work for uh, in the 2022 Tiara Awards. Uh, Emily is. Excellent, excellent, excellent in the areas of sales, in the areas of branding, in social selling, and I think in the areas of leadership too. Uh, so today's going to be an awesome conversation. Let's fire up, crew. Welcome to the show, Emily McLeod. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is an absolute honor and a privilege. Uh, every chance I get to have a chat with you is always a good time. Uh I'll tell you what, um, I always like to share like kind of how we got to know each other. And I actually think this is a good story to share because obviously we're talking about like business growth. We're talking about sales and we're talking about marketing. So we actually met because I was recruiting a sales role. Uh, you reached out to me because of that sales role. We caught up and then I actually became a customer, right? So it's kind of the perfect the perfect conversation to us for us to have about uh, kind of how we met because we met through sales and marketing ultimately. Do you remember we, how we that did. kind of all happened? Do you remember that happening, coming yeah. and meeting me in, uh, in Sussex Street? You know what's so strange? I walked past the cafe that we met in for the first time. I walked past that cafe this morning. It's called Socialite and it's down the bottom of that right. building on Sussex Street. Darling, you know where there's that sign for Darling Park and there's yeah. that cafe? So it's the first time we met, but yeah, I noticed I'd been following the entourage for a while. I'd been connected with you for a little while, I think as well. So our strategy is always to have you in our in our network for a little while before doing that cold outreach to build that awareness and so that I'm a little bit familiar before I reach out. Even if you don't realize I'm familiar in your subconscious, you've probably seen my name three or four times, <laughs> ideally. So um, I love that. I love yeah, that. Yeah. So when I reached out to you, I'd been following the entourage for a little while at the time. That's where you were at that time. And you advertised a BDM role and I reached out to you and just asked if we could chat about it. I didn't really have any expectation, but I did. Obviously, I wanted to talk about the role, but it was more of a networking relationship building type of outreach message to catch up with you. So, and then we yeah. went for coffee. You were so kind to come back to me. It was the beginning of the year too. And we ended yep. up having the coffee and then... I remember you were a hard negotiator. I do remember that part. <laughs> and then the rest is history. <laughs> well, I ended up, uh, I think I ended up hiring 
three different people through you guys. Um, and I've got to say, like, the whole experience, and I know I embarrass you sometimes when I say this when I introduce you to people, but the whole experience was hands down the best client experience I ever had uh, working with a recruiter, right? Um, obviously, not long after that, I got to meet Dan as well, your business partner in in WOW Recruitment. I think at the time when we met, Dan was kind of doing part-time um, mm. stuff in WOW Recruitment and you were kind of... It was of, only one day. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, you guys joined in at the Entourage. Uh, so we were like each other's clients at different times and all of that sort of <laughs> stuff. And, you know, yeah. a few, a bunch of uh, business growth milestones and various celebrations later, here we are. Exactly. You're a good salesperson. I always say that you end up getting me too. So I got you first, but then you got me back. <laughs> That's it. That's called the Uno reverse in sales. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Should never buy something without also selling something. Um, so what what I think would be really good is um, is maybe give you know the the listeners a little bit of the maybe half a glass of wine story of kind of how you went through this process. Like um, I remember one of the first things that we ever connected over was that we both started in the whole like. Uh, commission-only sales type environment, which I always find really interesting um, when hiring salespeople for my own teams. Um, how did you kind of go from like, you know, walking the mean streets, uh, convincing people <laughs> to buy stuff through to now, like, you know, founder of a, of a fast-growing recruitment agency? Yeah, good question because I actually started – when I came out of high school, I studied architecture and then engineering. So that's even more right. far fetched from getting into recruitment. But I started in, I was studying engineering at the point where I went into sales. I was lucky, I think in a sense, or not lucky, but I'm so grateful for the fact that I went into a great sales organization where I could learn so much. So I actually joined Daniel's sales organization, who's now my business mm. partner. So I joined his organization and they were doing commission only sales and that's where I got to really learn the sales craft. And mm. I think commission-only sales is so defining for your character. And I think everyone should do it. I know that's not realistic, but I think it would be beneficial for anyone who's in a customer-facing role to actually get a taste of commission-only sales because you start to realize that what in sales, and it's for any sales role, what you put in is what you get out. And mm -hmm. I think it's a great mentality to have to sales and you can always do more. And it's so much about the way you show up each day that defines the outcomes that you achieve. So that was great training ground. I got to learn things like body language and tonality and the way to present and different sales tactics and impulses and the importance of a process in your sales. Mm, and yeah. I quickly moved into a training role when I was there. So I started as a sales rep and then went to a team lead role and then more of a management role where I quite quickly had a team of 25 people reporting into me in the first six months that I was there. And the reason why was because I was able to articulate my sales process, teach it to others, show them how it works, and mm. then everyone just copy. And it was so foolproof that you had backpackers and, and young people coming out of university like myself who we're just following a process and able to have success off the back of that. So 
that was a pretty defining moment for me in my career because I realized that if I can systemize something and have a process around something, I can scale success. And I'm so grateful for that lesson. If I took anything from that, it was that lesson. And obviously yeah. the belief came with running a team. So I went from that. That was commission only. Naturally, I didn't want to do commission only forever. I started to get more responsibilities and started to grow up a bit and wanted more and wanted to go more into that corporate space. We weren't we're selling products. So we're in shopping centers and, as you said, on the streets. <laughs> and I wanted to get a grown-up job. <laughs> and so... I didn't really know what I wanted to do next, but I started interviewing at recruitment agencies for sales roles and yeah. for anything really. I was quite open. I didn't, I was quite lost at that point. And I ended up meeting a recruiter and she said, have you thought about doing recruitment? So like most recruiters, I had the story of falling into it, which yeah. is actually something I'm quite passionate about changing in the industry because a lot of people do just fall into it. But yeah, I fell into recruitment and absolutely loved it. And I wasn't amazing at it to begin with, but I could see the potential of it. And then a couple of years in, Daniel and I reconnected and we'd always worked so well together. We've got a good dynamic and we complement each other's personalities. We're so different, but we complement each other. And we were at lunch and he said, when are we going to work together again? And he put the idea to me of starting an agency. My mm. first response was, hell no, I am not ready. And that seems really scary. And I'd have no idea where to even start. And it seems so hard. And then I went away and thought about it. And I thought, if not now, when? Because I had not my, I didn't have a mortgage. I lived at home. I was 22. I was in a position where I had nothing to lose. And I was, I had a healthy dose of being overly naive and optimistic. So I probably didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I think that served me well. It's turned out okay. And that's how we got to opening WOW. And it was yeah. a combination of absolutely loving recruitment. And recruitment is a lot of a sale, like it is a lot of sales and sales process. So my skills were being used in the sales space, but it was loving recruitment and, and enjoying the process of that, actually enjoying the day-to-day -day grind. And then having someone like a person that I knew I'd work really well with and having belief in our partnership, I never for a second doubted whether we'd be successful if Daniel and I started working together. And I think mm. that is something that not everybody finds having a co-founder that you really back and truly believe in and rely on and trust is huge. So I think that's been a big part of getting me here. Someone pushing me there a little bit as well in the background and, and then now we're here and yeah. it's been five years. Five years later. Um, yeah. There's a few, there's, there's three things out of that that I, I find um, super interesting and I hope I remember the third one by the time I get to it. Um, <laughs> the, the first one is uh, the last two um, guests we've had on this podcast, uh, yeah. one went to university to be a chemical engineer and then decided not to do that and to do sales. The second one went to university to become a lawyer, got to the end of that, decided not to do that and went into sales. <laughs> so we've got a bit of a That's common so theme going here. Yeah. I think the um, engineering thing is that the structure of sales and engineering is, is where I find the alignment. But, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is... Um, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but something I tell people all the time is um, when you're 
promoting to people to a manager. Like as you build a business, at some point you've got to step up and you've got to manage through managers, right? Um, and I tell people all the time, when you make that move, the person that you hire shouldn't be the best salesperson or the best graphic designer or whatever. It should be the person that is ultimately the champion of the process, right? Yeah. Uh is that something that you've found in in your business as you've kind of scaled up that you need people that that also really believe in and care and can teach the process? Yeah, so I quickly learned, and I think it's something in our industry as re- in the recruitment space, but also something that's widely a challenge across sales is that not every top sales performer makes a great leader. Mm. or makes a great manager and I had to learn that the hard way when we first started wow I knew I wanted to have advancement and progression opportunity for the people that came into wow but I assumed everybody wanted to go down that leadership path and so I think before we go into that is there does need to be clear advancement opportunity for an individual contributor and somebody who wants to be a people leader so that people can go in either direction and feel like they can meet their career goals in advance with the company, regardless of whether they're individual contributor or a people leader. And then, yes, I think someone who's going down that people leader path definitely needs to be someone who is systematic and can define and articulate what the sales process is. Because if it's someone who can't actually define what their sales process is or even their processes in their role, how are they going to be able to replicate that or duplicate that as they train and as they upskill and impart that wisdom onto the people they're mentoring. So I think it's an absolute non-negotiable skill set that they can articulate it and they're aware and then can teach it to others. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, That piece around like, um, you know, the best salespeople don't necessarily make the best sales managers. I actually think that's true in in most departments, right? The person who's the best uh, website developer doesn't necessarily make a good marketing manager. I think it applies in a lot yeah. of places. Um, but I do think that all of them have to know how it works. Like I don't think you can manage a process if you don't know the process, if you don't know how it works, and if you can't add value to the people that you are managing, you know, in the process that oh. they're following, in the process that that they're delivering. The third thing, what uh, before I forget it, uh, was you talked about like the partnership with Dan. Um, yeah. I think it's pretty rare that like entrepreneurship and business growth are a solo sport. It's not really like singles tennis, you know. It's I think it's actually <laughs> really like a team sport. Um, yeah. What are the sort of things that you found like really matter when it comes to having, you know, that that person to bounce off? What are the things like the sort of benefits, the things that you found are important in order to be able to utilize that partnership, utilize mm-hmm. that relationship to grow? I love what you said about it being rare. And I think when when Daniel and I actually sat down to talk about launching WOW, Daniel had run previous businesses and he'd always run them on his own and he actually made a point of saying to me I never want to run a business on my own ever again I'll only Mm. launch new businesses if I have a co-founder because the reality is running it on your own is not only lonely leadership is lonely so when you're doing it on your own running it on your own is not only lonely but 
You don't have someone to challenge your ideas, challenge your way of thinking and expand your way of thinking on a daily basis because we definitely do that for each other. And you just don't have that person to have fun with and confide Mm. in and tell everything to. There's no off-limits conversations between us naturally. So, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's been... I've never run it on my own, but it was, it's been great to see his perspective and how grateful he has for having a business owner. Cause it makes, I mean, sorry, a co-founder because it makes me have that gratitude as well. But yeah, the thing is at the beginning, we probably didn't do it as effectively as what we could have. There was a lot of doubling up and a lot of duplicate efforts on the same tasks and trying to achieve the same outcomes. And it wasn't until we had more of a divide and conquer mentality where we split our responsibilities across the different pillars of our business that we started to get real traction. So Daniel's now ramped up to three days a week and I'm still five days. So he's started to do more, but we've also set ourselves really clear outcomes in different divisions. We're naturally such competitive people that he took marketing and I took sales. And it's such a healthy, such a healthy, not competition, but I'm like, I need leads. And he's like, you need to convert the leads. And so it's, it becomes (laughs) a really healthy, healthy dynamic because we expect things from each other and deliver higher results because of that. So he, as an example, took over finance, whereas I took over people management and operations and sales. So it became really clear who was doing what. We wrote job descriptions, which we never dreamt mm. we'd do for each other, but it was the only way to become super clear. And we set we set it so that our remuneration was based on the exact projects we're in charge of to give really clear accountability to what we're trying to achieve. Mm. And we we cross over. It's not like, oh, I won't touch that. We, we cross over so much because at the end of the day, it's our business and we're happy to wear multiple hats, but we were doing way too much of that at the beginning. It was a yeah. bit of a free-for-all and it led to wasted time. And when when you have a team and as the team starts to grow, they need clear direction on who does what and who to go to for what. So as the team grew, we started to feel that that was needed even more. So yeah, I think it's just about getting really clear on your job descriptions and communicating regularly. So we started doing, we obviously do our yearly, well, I say obviously, I mean, it's obvious to me, but not everyone, but we do our yearly strategy session and we break that down into quarterly sessions. And so mm-hmm. we'll do a quarterly strategy where we review the previous quarter and set up the next quarter. And then we have a weekly strategy meeting. So it's only an hour. And we don't talk about day-to-day things. We talk about pure strategy and that keeps us on track and aligned with the goals that we're trying to achieve and the objectives we're trying to achieve for the year. And having facilitating that open dialogue consistently so that we can talk about challenges and innovate and strategize has also been incredible for our yeah. progression as, as a business. I think there's probably a really important lesson in that, not just for uh, founders. Um, I think there's probably a really important lesson in that for like um, senior executives in most businesses, you know, Mm. having that person that you can talk to about anything that you can tell the absolute truth to. There's no off, off, like you said, there's no like off limits topics. (laughs) You know, if you're a, a marketing director, having that counterpart that you can have those conversations with 
that you can have some fun and joke with, but, you know, really get to the nitty gritty of things and someone to lean on, I think is probably really important for people in, in those positions too. Probably yeah, a similar actually, sort of dynamic. Yeah. And I, we actively spend time cultivating that relationship. I think it's so important. I hear in not only my industry, but so many industries where, uh, business partners and founders just it falls apart and relationships break down and things don't work and I've had so many stories actually in the last month of, from people I'm mentoring where they've got rid of their business partner and and mm-hmm. things have gone south and it makes me really it makes me feel grateful for what we have but it is a constant conscious effort to cultivate that relationship and ensure that we're being open with our communication and telling each other what we're thinking and what we want and being so open to challenging each other and it's it's having a healthy it's like any relationship right like just having a healthy balance of Mm. um of everything yeah so it's conscious effort yeah you hear um you hear a lot of people give like bad advice thinking it's good advice in business all the time and uh (laughs) and and the bad advice I hear the most often is like um business is business personal is personal they should be separate and particularly like people talk about that when it comes to leadership uh you know you have to be able to have difficult conversations with people and I always I've always thought like who is the person that I could have the most difficult conversation with? It's the person that I'm the closest to where they understand that I care about them as an individual person and they assume my best intentions in the conversation. People that I don't have a personal relationship with, if I come in telling them what they need to do differently and how they need to change, the so wall true. is immediately going to go up and resistance yeah. is going to come up and they're going to start looking for another job, right? Um, I've always, I've always thought that about, about that piece of advice and I love to hear you say that. Like you have, to, you have to actively and proactively cultivate those relationships, even if it's a business partner, if it's a mm. counterpart in another department. Like you have to have a personal relationship. Otherwise, you can't, it's hard to hold people accountable. It's hard to tell them the truth about what's going on. Yeah, and I always remember the quote. I can't remember who says it. You'll probably know. Um, people don't <laughs> people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Oh, yeah. I forget who said that one too. <laughs> I'm putting you, you on the me. spot. You got me. <laughs> but I, that always is in my head that people don't know how, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's yeah. so important as a leader to remember. Yeah, uh, totally agree. I have a feeling it was like Tony Robbins or someone like that, but I'm probably totally no, right. surely I'm not. Telling it to the wrong person. <laughs> um, you know what? You, I'll tell you what. It's not a very good segue to it, but uh, I I really want to talk to you about um, branding, right? So there's there's some core pieces in um, in what we want to talk about on this show, right? We break mm. uh, revenue growth down into five main pieces. And the marketing and sales elements of them are um, uh, demand creation as the first one. Yeah. Like how do we get people wanting to come to us? Uh, I like, I've heard it described before as uh, how do you beat Google, right? How do you mm-hmm. stop them going to Google looking for a solution because they're already coming to yeah. you because you're the obvious person to talk to? The second part is demand capture. 
somebody has a need and they're looking for a need, how do we make sure that we're the person they find? And the third part being demand conversion. Um, I know you've done quite a bit of work. I know you very obviously done quite a bit of branding work for WOW Recruitment uh, mm-hmm. and done quite a bit of like personal branding work. Um, can you maybe, I don't know if this is the best way to ask the question, but can you maybe like just talk us through that experience, what you found uh, about branding and how it really helps you to kind of create opportunity? Yeah. So I suppose I should probably go back a couple of years to explain this because I was that business that was just chasing leads and mm. chase like cold calling and hunting and spending all my time hunting getting the lead, converting, hunting, getting the lead, converting. And mm. there was no demand generation happening at all. And I'm, I describe demand generation as educating people to the point where they realize they need you before they would have otherwise. Like mm. you create that need for them or they decide they need you before they would have actually realized they need you because you're educating them and they go, oh, I want a piece of that. Like I, I want to mm. work with her because that would be awesome for us. But it's not been a need yet in their awareness anyway. So yeah, it- I imagine that must be pretty important in, in your world because like having been a client of recruiters for many years, you very rarely mm. are thinking to yourself, I need a recruiter. <laughs> like the order yeah. in which you kind of go through the process and sometimes like are resistant to the idea of a recruiter. Um, yeah. You know, having, to, having to push through that rather than create that demand and generate that demand must make it a bit, a bit harder. Yeah. And, and two years ago, it was, it was just constantly trying to bring down everyone's bias resistance. And when I'd mm. be able to start the conversation, it would it would already start on I, I've tried everything. I've already extended every resource and you're my last resort. <laughs> mm. So every conversation, that's where we were at. Maybe even three years ago, actually, it was 2020. So when COVID hit, I, I, took, we, I took that time to really think about the business and the brand and we went through a full rebrand. And that's when we got serious about branding. And that's when we brought on a digital marketing agency and started to get really serious about our marketing strategy and our branding strategy. And the reason being was because I was like, if we have gone through, because we lost all revenue streams during COVID, similar to a lot of businesses. Mm. And so because we're at an absolute standstill, and that's around the time I actually turned to you to go help me out and we joined the program and went through a lot of coaching. But at that point, it was okay, if we're going to make it through this, I want to come out the other side and make a huge bang and get lots of traction. And it's funny because now I meet people at awards events and things and they say, you came from nowhere. Like after COVID, you just came from nowhere. Am I going to come from nowhere? It was blood, sweat and tears. (laughs) (laughs) But sure. So we (laughs) we spent that time really thinking about the strategy. So anyway, part of that was we wanted to really nail this whole demand gen thing. I've been working with clients in the US a lot at that point and demand gen was a huge conversation for my tech clients over there. And we were starting to recruit head of demand gen and I was starting to think more and more about what is this demand generation thing and how do we get some of that? And so that became, we started to go, well, what conversation do we want to own? And how do we how do we build a conversation and build something that we're known for and get consistent messaging around that conversation? And so this year, the strategy, for example, is that it's all around building 
high-performing teams and work cultures and providing and building a great place to work and retain your staff because in this current market, in these market conditions, that is probably the smartest way to go about talent shortages is retention. And so we're choosing conversations we want to own and focusing on educating people and educating people in that space, adding value and going into our sales strategy, I guess you could say, with the idea of longevity, relationship building, networking, and not thinking what's the outcome going to get from this conversation from the very beginning. It's more around how can I add value? How can I build this relationship and and network? And generally, we could both maybe get something out of this. And it's a two-way dialogue. And how can we educate on our space? And then that's turned into our sales strategy. And then mm. from that demand generation, people coming to us and us getting the inbound leads. We, for demand, you mentioned demand capture and we do have lead, we do have, sorry, um, digital marketing spend on paid campaigns for that demand capture so that when people are Googling and, and actively looking, we can capture them as well. But once we have the leads, we now have such a simplified yet, it's not that complex, but a simplified yet, really clearly set out sales process. Mm. So once a lead comes from awareness through to consideration to us converting it, we have a really clear process of how we can then convert that. And so it goes through our sales process and everyone's trained on that. It's so foolproof. It goes back to what I was saying earlier around sales, just being a process that is foolproof and anyone can follow no matter what your skill set is. And so everyone follows that. And then we focus on training them on how to do that effectively, but the process mm. is there. So we can focus on upskilling people's emotional intelligence side of things and the way they engage with somebody and their green brain thinking, as an example. You're obviously familiar with green brain thinking. Yep. <laughs> so we go through that. I don't know if our audience is, but... Uh... But uh, it's not something I've really talked about on this on this podcast before. Uh, so just for a, a tiny bit of context for the audience, uh, red brain thinking yeah. is essentially where you are talking about logical aspects of um, what your customer needs, what they're potentially going to buy in order to solve their problems. Green brain is very much the emotional triggers, uh, the emotional aspects of how people make decisions. People make uh, decisions emotionally and they justify them logically. So you do need both. Uh, but what Emily is talking about is essentially the emotional aspects of decision-making. Yeah. So we add that layer in and all of those things are just adding the layers, but the sales process is there for actually then converting that demand mm -hmm. into happy customers. Does that answer your question? It it really it re <laughs> very much does, uh, and I love that what you talked about there in terms of like um, a simple sales process. Actually, the last guest we had on um, Ross Ashman uh, actually said in that episode, uh, "Sales is simple, but it's not easy." Right? Yeah. Um, it ha it has to be simple, and there's kind of two parts to it. And one of them you you talked a little bit about there, like it has to be simple in part because most businesses get built by a founder selling something, right? And because of their like sheer overwhelming amount of knowledge and connection with the customer and yeah. the volume of conversations they've had, uh, they have a way that they do it. And that way tends to be probably like 
a high barrier to entry way to do it in terms of trying to hire other salespeople to do that. Um, yeah. And so, so I think that that's like a really important aspect that people should take out of that is um, you have to, if you're going to build a sales process, it has to be simple because you have to be able to quickly onboard new salespeople to it and they have to be able to deliver it without yeah. the years of experience selling this product to these customers that that the founder or whoever had been driving sales prior to that has. I think that's like a uh, an yeah. actually like an essential element for building sales process, you know, and for building yeah, teams think, too. Yeah, and I think another part of that was making our solution really easy to articulate for a new consultant coming in. Mm. When I was explaining it, it was a 13-step process describing our solution and it wasn't memorable it wasn't something that people could easily come in and pick up and just run with and be able to explain to somebody they had to watch me do it so many times before they could really articulate it themselves and the I guess they weren't retaining the information and I figured geez if they can't retain this information how are the clients really retaining Mm. this and being able to make a decision on this so we changed we based we called it our Five steps, five steps to recruitment happiness. Because our whole um, our whole purpose and mission and vision is all around recruitment happiness for everyone involved, being candidates, clients, and colleagues and yep. community. And so we were like, let's make it our five steps to recruitment happiness. And it's our five-step recruitment model. And we're able to explain our solution by explaining if you're if we were to work this role for you, these are the five steps we go through, and this is how we deliver. And this is what you can expect from us. These are the things that make us unique in each of these five points. Like this is our USP. This is how we differ from other recruiters in each point, but it's a five-step process. And it was so much more memorable for not only our staff to pick it up and run with it and explain it to somebody, but also so much more memorable for our clients and customers so that they could then take it away and explain it to other people who maybe weren't in the room and be able to sell our solution when we weren't around. And that was when we started to get game-changing results with our revenue, when we introduced that. So that's another piece of it, I suppose. So just um, for some for some context, because obviously you guys have you guys have grown really fast. It's been super impressive to watch. What what does the um, the sort of customer acquisition process look like? What is the the sort of end to end? How do you take somebody from a uh-huh. uh, without obviously giving away too much to any other recruiters that might be listening in? Um, how do you take somebody from you know a stranger to a to a customer? So we generally run off the seven touch point to ten touch point model to conversion, but mm. from a stranger. That's a good point. Normally, from a qualified lead onwards, I can explain that quite clearly, from stranger to qualified lead can sometimes be five to 10 touch points of sending salary guides or sending articles or sending blogs. Mm. And um, it could be just market insights. And we don't make it as thing where you've got to give us your information to download something. We give it all out freely. It's all just Mm. value add as much as we can give you because if you've got all that knowledge, you'll realize how tough the market is and and you'll realize our expertise and our, our specialization in those markets and you'll probably want to know more and have a conversation with us. And so I think it's quite 
and and on each of those they're built with so much purpose like every single piece of material we send out is built to convert and it's built for call to action and it's built for someone to want to have a conversation with us so whilst it's value adding it's we've got an awesome marketing agency who are so creative about ensuring it's quite compelling to want to speak to us mm. once you finish reading yep. it so we offer enough to entice the customer but we obviously don't offer all because at the end of the day you still need to find the person to fill your team so that's up yeah. until that's like all our demand gen and, and lead gen piece and then once it gets to qualified once it gets to them speaking to us our initial thing is a qualifying call so we jump on a phone call with them generally that's just discovery qualifying from that point we'll book in a discovery meeting and that's all about understanding their business unpacking their pain points understanding exactly what it is so once we get to the point where we're having a conversation with them, we need to qualify, we'll do an initial phone call. That's where we're asking questions, qualifying, ensuring it's an ideal customer for us because just as much as we want to get new customers, we need them to be aligned with our ideal client. Mm-hmm. So basically sense checking them against our avatar. Once they qualify, we'll book them in for a discovery meeting. That discovery meeting is all about understanding their business, unpacking their challenges, their pain points, trying to really understand why they're reaching out to us and where we can add value and where our solution might be. But we're not really offering solutions in that call, like that or that meeting. It could be face-to-face or on Zoom. But that part is really about just unpacking and discovery, really. And then from there, we come away and we come together, we put together a strategy. And then the next meeting would be a strategy meeting where we talk about the solution we can provide as an agency and go through all our outcomes and deliverables that we would deliver for them, what they can expect from us and put together a good project plan. And then from there, they go to onboarding. So that's where we we partner them up with a good consultant. They get to know each other. We do a job brief, get the brief on the role and give them a really, at that point, rehash what the project plan is and timeframes and what they can expect from us. And then we go out to market. Yeah. So it's quite this simple. Is, this is- that can be applied to any business. Yeah, and this is this is good B two B sales process. I'm really interested in you. You said earlier um, in relation to your content that um, that you kind of just give it freely. It's not you know it's not really sort of like gated lead magnety kind of content. Yeah. Um, we have you were you in the lead magnet space because I've I've noticed and I know a lot of a lot of people are noticing that. Um, People aren't really that keen to be tricked into your sales pipeline anymore. No, um, people are too smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, is that something you sort of noticed, heard? Like was that a conscious decision to say we want them to come to us to talk to us because they need our help rather than get them to download something and now we're trying to force them to have a sales conversation? I think the customer is changing. Like anyone mm. who is treating the customer how they treated the customer 10, 15, 20 years ago, even five years ago. Three years ago, I reckon. Yeah, like the customer yeah. is just changing so much and we speak to our customers so much. And my role now, especially when I was on the tools and recruiting, I was obviously very involved in the customer. But now my role is talking to the customer in a really different like I'm asking them for feedback and what do you want and what do you need and what do you expect and how can we differentiate from all the other recruiters that knock on your door all the time? And we're just listening to our customer. And 
the salary guides is just a value add. It's not what we do. It's not our service offering. We're not mm. losing out by providing that to somebody. It's insights we're getting anyway from the field that we're working in. The market trends and everything, it's, it's not what we sell, but it is what we see every day. And it's a way of us building credibility. It's a way of us building trust in a market that is so saturated. And if you can do that, I just don't think there's any point when the ultimate game is to build trust and credibility and brand loyalty. I just don't see the point in gating that kind of information. It's not. Yeah. yeah. I just don't yeah. see the point. I mean, do you agree? I don't know if I'm. I totally, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. Are you guys doing those salary guides for more than sales now? Because I know I've used your salary guides for sales yeah. roles before. Is that something you're doing like across the board? Yeah, so we do it for every vertical that we specialize in. So there's a sales and account mm. management one. There's a marketing and very digital focused one. And then there's a contact center and then just general office support one. So, yeah. and it's everything from like entry, it's every, all the roles we recruit for and that we have the insights on. So it's anything from entry level through to senior. And we're surveying people and getting that information to understand what our clients are actually getting paid and trying to yeah. ensure we're putting something out there that's valuable for businesses and even candidates to benchmark themselves. So it's valuable for both. It's, it's certainly something I've used before and found really helpful. So uh, shameless plug, if anyone wants to figure out what you should be paying <laughs> for any roles across those areas, make sure you jump on yeah. to uh, the WOW Recruitment website and go looking for that guide. Um, I, I Some of the things that you've talked about in this session, I think um, I would personally like associate with you. So the branding piece is definitely one. You talked earlier about the importance of relationship building. I think that's another one. Uh, one that you didn't, you've kind of talked about, but not really specifically is around the client experience stuff. Like I said off the top, um, my experience working with you and with WOW Recruitment was the best recruitment experience that I'd had was was the client experience and the way you kind of support, communicate, all those things. Has that been like a really conscious decision that you've made? Uh, is it something you kind of had to learn or, or how did that kind of come about? Yeah, so the client experience is something that's always been super important to me personally. And it was actually quite tough when we first started WOW to be able to replicate the care when it came to client experience, when we first started building and we've nailed it now, but in the beginning, it was a challenge to get people to care as much as I did. Naturally, as a business owner, I cared so much about my clients and about what we were doing. And it was part of why I loved recruitment and not everyone had that care. And so it became part of our, our internal recruitment strategy. Like we, we recruit so heavily aligned with our values and the values make up the people and what they're motivated towards and the way they show up every day. And so our values aren't just something that I say are our company values. Our values were formed originally by interviewing our clients, interviewing our candidates and interviewing our team members. And we do that regularly to make sure they're still aligned. So our values are our values, don't get me wrong, but they, and they, they're very heavily worded and created based on our leadership team coming together. And it's they've been very similar from the very beginning, but they've always been sense-checked with and originally created by other people 
who actually can see how we live and breathe and what we do and can really vouch mm-hmm. the fact that they are truly our values. So you see a lot of these organizations that just say, yeah, they're our values and you show up in their office Pull and you think, on the wall. you're fun? Really? Are you sure? <laughs> so <laughs> Innovation. I so uh, haven't changed a thing in 10 years. Yeah. yeah their gotcha. mentality is just the way we do things around here, but they say they innovate. So <laughs> So we we make sure we really do live and breathe our values, but then we create decision-making metrics around that. So I mentioned before that everything we do is around recruitment happiness for our candidates, clients, colleagues, and community. And so that's a really clear decision-making metric whenever you, you're dealing with client. So there's some of the more high-level things like decision-making metrics, values, and everything being aligned from that side when you're hiring people and and managing client experience from like an internal perspective. But then it's just about having like cadences and KPIs and processes around client experience. So all our expectations are documented around a client's journey and what they should expect in terms of levels of communication and delivery and timeframes on things that we've got heavy KPIs that we track and monitor weekly. And I know that in recruitment, that can be frowned upon, but we do it with so much purpose. It's never KPI for a KPI's sake. It's always connected to overall purpose and outcome of what we're trying to achieve. And from there, we celebrate that and really encourage that. And I think you encourage what you celebrate. And so every week in our Friday wrap-up, we're always shouting out the team members who are excelling in client experience and who are selling in candidate mm. experience too. It goes both ways. We're testing it with NPS scores so that we've always got a finger on the pulse, knowing exactly how our candidates and clients feel about us. And every consultant has a score and we're always trying to get our scores higher. And it's something we take so much pride in. So there's the NPS and tracking and KPIs and that's all worked into our system, into our CRM. So it's not reliant on manual work. It's all quite automated so that we can track that. And then it's inspect what you expect. I mean, if I expect my my consultants to operate at such a high level with their client experience, I need to inspect that routinely and ensure we stay on top of it so the accountability is there. And look, most people do it naturally because they genuinely want to do well with their clients, but we train a lot of rookies. So it's just about instilling those habits. Nobody wakes up one morning and decides you know, they don't want to do right by the client. That doesn't happen. Yeah. But if you don't have the right systems and processes and skill set and tools to be able to deliver and do it well, things can sometimes go wrong. So we yeah. just have to inspect what you expect. I love that. Inspect what you expect. Um, yeah. You know, going and having a you, where where you talked about like not KPIs for KPIs sake, inspecting what you expect. Like going and looking and figuring out what's going on to me is like good people management. We say this to to our um, you know, our outsourcing clients all the time. You actually have yeah. to be involved. You have to go looking. You're not looking to try and find what people only what people are doing wrong. You're looking to find what they're doing right. You're looking to find what can be improved. But if you're never looking at it, um, it's a little bit like um, the uh, the Schrodinger's cat. Uh, thought exercise right so long as the box remains closed the cat is both dead and alive at the same time uh mm-hmm. i think of this with like processes it's like so long as the box is, remains closed so long as we don't go looking everything's fucked and everything's fine all at the same time 
right? Yeah. So you get <laughs> so, you, so you get the uh, you get the anxiety also of not knowing, mm. right? Not knowing yeah. whether your team's doing a good job, not knowing whether it's working until you go and look. And as soon as you look, mm. if it is you know, pardon my language, fucked. Uh, don't worry, this uh, <laughs> podcast comes with an explicit label, just FYI. Um, <laughs> if it is, then you can do something about it. And if it's not, you can go yeah. and do something else, right? Yeah, I mean, how can you need the information? As a leader, you need the information and the data to be able to make decisions. I think you can't just be winging it all the time. And when we first started, we were winging it all the time. And don't get me wrong, we had levels of success, but nowhere near the success or the scale that we could have if we if we actually started, we basically got dashboards and started looking at everything and had a bird's eye view of the business so that you could make decisions with data. And I think someone like myself, I, I love leading people. I love seeing people succeed. And I think I can sometimes be a little bit too nice and give people too many chances. And it really removes that emotional side of leadership to being, I know I, it, it makes it more about data and then you can have more structured and more relevant conversations where you're not having a critical conversation based on the way you feel about that person. You're having a conversation about the data and what's actually happening. And and I think with a lot of people, they respond well to that when you've actually got the data and it's quite clear and you can show them what's happening and you can start to do gap analysis. So I think if data is missing, and or you're not looking at it and you're managing, how do you know where the gaps are? Because if the activity's there, right, but the outcome's not there, well, then there's something wrong with the quality of what you're doing. But if the activity's not there and the outcome's not there, well, then we know we need to increase the activity. So you can do a bit of gap analysis and you can look at the areas mm. that the activity is and the areas that it's not. And you can start to say, well, if we pull this lever or if we do this, and as a as a leader or a mentor, you can sit down with that person, be able to see very clearly where the gaps are and where you need to work. And then you can get a high-performing person and then a high-performing team. But without that, when you're just winging it, it's very hard to know what levers need to be pulled. I mean, you can only rely on intuition to a certain extent, I believe. I Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, you know, if you're having those conversations with people, like, look, not 100% of people work out in every job. There is a perfect job out there for everyone. This yeah. job isn't always perfect for this person, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's and that's okay. Um, but what is not okay, I think, is somebody um, being let go and not knowing that it's coming, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and not knowing why, right? If If they have to ask you why, I don't think that we've done the right job in management up until the point that we've let them go. And a hundred percent of managers at some point are going to have to let some people go. I know that's a horrible Definitely. thing to think about, but it is what happens. Yeah. Um, I love what you said there, what you were talking about there in terms of leadership, actually like over the the few years that we've known each other, I've, I've, uh, I've really admired your like growth mindset, your approach to learning. And I think that really shows up in your, your leadership you know, I see so many people in your business that have been there for quite a long time and seem to really enjoy themselves. Uh, I know it's hard to kind of tell that stuff from the outside, but it, it does really seem that way. Um, what's your approach to, um, I mean, you've mentioned some things there in terms of your approach to leadership, your approach to team building, um, but what's your like kind of fundamental pillars of like 
what do I want to be as a leader in order to be able to build great teams? That's, that's a, a really hard question, question to answer. That's a hard question. <laughs> the first thing that's coming to mind, though, when you say that is human, like to be human and be authentic. That That's coming to me. I know that's – and what I mean by that is I think in the last couple of years I've had to really exercise that skill, that that muscle of being okay, being vulnerable and being a little bit more human with my team. Mm. As a leader, sometimes you have to have all the answers and that you have to know everything and that you have to always make the right decision and and that you have to always be okay even when things are super stressful, say, during the pandemic, as an mm. example. And there is a pressure to just have your shit together all the time, for lack of a better way to explain it. Yeah, And I think when I started to really step into my role as a leader and really own that role. It's really been a journey. It's been a recent journey for me the last two to three years, probably three years. So it's all quite fresh for me. And I think I've been there, don't get me wrong, but I I mean like truly stepping into it in a way where Mm. I'm proud of the way I'm showing up. And I think that that journey has been about letting go of the expectation to be perfect and owning imperfections and going, Sometimes I don't have the answer. What do you think? And encouraging conversation and encouraging, like, let's figure it out. Like, if I don't know the answer, generally when I'm by myself, I research, I figure it out. Like, I have such a figure-outable mentality to things, like everything Mm. you can figure out. And so I started going, I don't need to have all the answers, but I can give you guys the toolkit and the habits that I have to go and figure it out. So that kind of thing and then being a bit more vulnerable and real with people. And I don't think that's detrimental as a leader. I think it's empowering. I think it's relatable. I think it creates a culture where other people feel like they can be themselves. And I think when you do that and you have a really human approach to it, you see everyone else as a whole person and it it trickles through the way you do everything. I mean, I see, and you mentioned it earlier when we were speaking about looking after that whole the whole person and and caring for your people. And I think when you let down those barriers and truly just be yourself and operate in your own unique way and own your unique way of operating and have confidence in it, it does trickle through and you then lead your people in that way and you encourage that of them and then you get the best results from them and then they feel like they can show up and be the best version of themselves. And I think it's led to more powerful conversations. It's led to people in my team, especially really unpacking why they're here, why they're doing this and what the ultimate outcome and ultimate goal is for them in life and having bigger picture conversations and being okay sharing that and being a little bit more vulnerable about certain things that may have happened when you're Mm. growing up that shaped the way you are and shaped your trigger points and shaped your goals and shaped your ambition in life. Like if you can have those conversations in a workplace, I think that's so rare. And I think me becoming that type of leader has enabled that and facilitated a place or created an environment. People think that that's quite normal to do when they feel comfortable to do that. And I think when you're tapping into that level of conversation with people at that big picture level, is what I'm referring to, the way of showing up in the office and doing your work and and the outcome and result of that is just game-changing. Like if you're not doing that, then you're leaving a part of people out 
out of the office, whereas we're trying to get everyone to bring that whole self in and yeah. put it all on the table. <laughs> we'll deal with it all. Um, yeah. But that's, that's, that's me loving the coaching side. So I think like my approach is like coaching and developing my people. That's what I love. Um, and having the mentality of I wouldn't ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do and we're all in this mm. together and I've been there and I've done it and I'll get on the tools with you and I'll pick up the phone and I'll show you what to do and no one's beyond or above any task and let's just get in there and do it together. And, yeah, it's – I don't know if that really answers the question. <laughs> I, I think it really does. That that part about um, being being willing to do things that you ask other people to do – I think that's one of those really, it's like a little action that you can take every day that makes a big difference to how a team feels about each mm-hmm. other and about you. Um, like I first got taught that by my dad years and years ago, and then I've reread that in a few places. One of them is in uh, one of the books I read about Ray Kroc, right, and the story of he would turn up to McDonald's uh, stores and just walk around yeah. the car park and just pick up litter, right? Yeah. Um, I think sometimes it's just the tiniest little things like, um, you know, being a leader but being one of the people that, pardon my language again, cleans the fucking kitchen in the office, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little things like this that you, you have to be willing to put in where everybody else puts in. And everybody's got their role to play. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, be making a hundred phone calls a day because that's what somebody else does in in your team. But you better be willing to make some phone calls when it's needed. You better be willing to to do some client meetings when it's needed. Needed. You better be willing to uh, help prepare a presentation when it's needed. Like as you step up through the layers, you still have to be willing to do those things and take those little efforts and. Whatever you expect of everyone, you definitely have to do, especially the uh, the kitchen yeah. example. I know that's one that yeah, gets on a lot of people's nerves. <laughs> no, I mean, I clean the kitchen regularly, but also we had a BD day um, yesterday and yeah. the team set up the competition and they, they created teams that had three teams and I wasn't in any team and I was a little bit offensive, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> And they said that I'd have my own competition because I'm not allowed to be in one of their teams because it gives disadvantage anyway. And so I I said um, that I wanted to be involved anyway. And so they all had their competition going. I wasn't part of it, but I just got on the phones and got amongst it because not only do I love being on the phones, but I figured, well, if you're all going to sit here and do it, I'm going to sit in the middle of the office and I'll jump on the phones and show that I'm also getting involved. And people yeah. learn from that, but it also shows I'm willing to get in there and do it with you. And yeah, so I think that it's 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 crucial. I think leaders that do that normally have a lot of buy-in from their team, a lot of engagement from their team, a lot of respect, and are able to get are able to influence because and get people to follow them. Because I've seen it in my own career, like the leaders that do that, and mm. even the ones we read about, like Emma Isaacs, who runs Business Chicks, in mm. her book Winning. She talks about like running events and things because that's what they do for business chicks. And she said that she'll be there, the last person sweeping at the end of the day. And you, when mm-hmm. you see her on stage, you think that she'd be the last person sweeping up or cleaning up the office and things like that because she's got so much going on. But she's got that mentality and it's no surprise that she's got, you know, a very successful business as a result. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, you uh, You mentioned a book there. I, I like to ask everybody about this because, um, you know, I 
I love to read. In fact, some of the best books I've read the last couple of years have been suggestions from you. Uh, give me an example. What's the what's the book that you remember having kind of like a fundamental impact? Something you read where you mm-hmm. were like, "This actually changes the way I do things," and and has had an impact in in kind of where you've ended up. You yeah, can give so, more than one, by the way, but but uh, start with one. Well, I have, I have two. So, well, and I don't know whether it, yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know whether it's the book itself or the timing of when I read it and I just really needed it, but Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Have you, I think that's you've read of, that. I think that's the, that's one of the ones that you suggested to me, yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, that was game-changing. So I read it in yeah. the first lockdown. So as I said, I I think the timing of it was also part of it, but she just gives you such good frameworks for difficult conversations, one-on-ones, running team meetings, just getting the best out of your people. And as soon as I read that, I just changed the structure of my performance reviews, the structure of the way I was asking questions and my general conversations with the team. Like that that book, I think every leader should read it. I use it as gospel. Like I'll often refer back mm. to it. I've got things highlighted and sticky notes. And yeah, I'll go back to it if I ever want a bit of a refresher. And if anyone in my team is going through the leadership training and is moving into a team lead role, like that's a, you've got to read this book type of book. <laughs> so was there, was there like a particular, um, a particular lesson, a particular thing that you now do that you got from that? Yeah. So one of them, I think, naturally maybe because we're so time poor as leaders or and what we do is that when someone asks us a question naturally we just provide the solution or answer the Mm. question whereas after and that's just because it's easier it's easier to give you the answer and keep going with what I need to get done Mm -hmm. because we're so task focused and what I got from her was some really good tools to be able to turn that back on the person and ask discovery questions it's like qualifying mm. so but ask questions like well what do you think and but if in your wildest dreams you could have an answer what would it could it possibly be and get them to really expand their way of thinking and and to say things like but what about this and and what if this happened and okay and if you did that what could the impact be and to start to ask really open-ended questions to get the person to really think for themselves versus relying on your brain <laughs> and going to you for answers so easy to do that's something i took out of it that's always been very memorable yeah there's some lessons in that yeah yeah there's some lessons in that that are very similar to um i don't know if anyone's ever read uh, the one minute manager meets the monkey an old oh, ken blanchard no. book there's a whole series of the one minute manager books. It's my list. very 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 classic uh management books they're very they're very uh small books that you can crack through them in like a day and a half mm. um but one of the main messages out of that that I kind of linked up with what I got out of Radical Candor is um, I think too often we we let people kind of just leave their problems with us. I think I don't think this is just a leadership thing. I think this is a, a teamwork thing in general, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, people feel like once they've told someone else the problem, they've now unloaded it and they don't necessarily now need to do anything about it. It's like the monkey off the back topic. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. So the the point of the um the one minute manager meets the monkey is that people are constantly walking around with monkeys and they're trying to put them on your back instead of on their own. And so they're like, yeah. hey, I've got this problem where um I don't have a case study in the 
um, in the construction industry, right? And they'll tell someone that, and that person usually will go, oh, well, yeah, we should organize that. Or I'll org- worse, I'll organize that, right? Or they'll say, okay, and then the person leaves. The person feels like they don't hold the monkey anymore. Now the other person has it. Uh, and because they've told them about it, they've got to do something about it. And something yeah. that I took away from her as well was similar to what you were saying. Like it's important in that moment to find out uh, what they think should happen without being mm. overly committed because people won't necessarily want to give uh, a pin- uh, won't want to tell what they believe. So what's the thing she says? She says, um, ask them, what's your opinion, right? Because everyone's got an opinion. You can take them, you can leave them, you can throw them away, whatever. People will be more likely to be like, oh, well, I think maybe we could we could try this. And if it's a good idea, then you say, all right, let me know if you need any help. Yeah. Uh, and just being able to turn things around like that, I think is not just an important leadership um, thing, but it's a interpersonal team member approach yeah. to take like how do we how do we help each other to take ownership of our own problems i i've say to my own teams fairly frequently um, unfortunately uh whoever has the problem owns the problem <laughs> so <laughs> yeah if you've got the problem what do you want to do about it and i think sometimes apologies for just kind of rambling on here but um, you see, you see a lot of leaders not want their team to come to them with problems. You know, there's this approach of don't come to me with problems, come to me with, come to me with solutions. But sometimes they mm. come to you with problems because they don't know how to solve it, and you might have more information than them. The trick is just not taking it over and solving it, right? Mm. Sometimes they just need, and they need to feel like they can come to somebody and have a sounding board and all that sort of stuff. You know talk yeah. about the problems, figure it out, but still retain ownership and still retain, um, you know, retain ownership over solving it too and celebrate having solved having solved it. Yeah. So I, lo- I love that book. I'm so glad you, I'm so, I didn't know that was the one you were going to mention. I'm so glad you did because ah. it was, uh, it, was a, it was one of my favorite books that I read. What would it have been? Not last year, the year before. Yeah. Mm, the whole chapter on performance management is good, like difficult conversations around bad performance. Like she gives structure to things and frameworks and just good general tools, like how to navigate a difficult conversation. And the radical candor thing is her whole theme. I mean, you know, but just for the listeners, the whole theme throughout the book is around having candid conversations and just being mm. so open and radically candid about the way you have these conversations and the way you build these relationships with your team members so you can always be honest and truthful and and have open communication where people aren't feeling like they can't tell you everything and they, they have to hide parts of things they might not be happy about or uncomfortable with. Like you can really start to build good relationships with your team members mm. off the back of it. Uh, one of the things from um, the, I forget what it's called, but the Netflix founder's book is he, he, he specifies have candid conversations but with good intentions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very important. Additional yep. Very important that. part of the puzzle, yeah. So and, um, oh, I was going to say my second one. Do I have time yep. for a second oh, one? Oh, yes, the that? second one. Please. <laughs> yeah. Please. Um. So my second one, this is a bit of a different one because I love an autobiography, mm. was Green Lights by Matt, Matt McConaughey. Did you read that? Oh, I haven't read it yet. I've heard a lot of good things, though. 
So reason why I love it is it's not a business book, so that's not what it's all about, but it's his story. He's obviously very successful in his acting career and everything else he's gone on to do as well, but he's just someone who really appreciates life. Like he just loves Mm. life and he just does not take anything for granted and he's just really making the most of life. And I loved it because it just made me look at at my my life really and go, oh, hang on a minute. I could be really taking time to smell the roses, if you will, Um, but but appreciating the journey and appreciating every moment and realizing, because he wrote that book by journaling every single day from when he was a a young teenager up until now. Mm. And he had so much self-reflection throughout that he was able to read back on things. And because he reflected every day and journaled every day, able to make more mindful and conscious decisions about where he wanted to go with things, both personally and professionally, like it's a real mix of the both. But that got me into journaling and that was game changing for me and that stuck with me. So got me into frequent reflection and being a bit more mindful about the way I show up and the way I do things. So I loved that book as well. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Any books that kind of, I think you've got to mix them up. Some that really help yeah. you learn stuff and, you know, very business focused. Some that are like help you learn how to live life better too. Um, I've been <laughs> yeah. on a, I've been on a bit of a rabbit hole recently of like, um, you know, sort of a bit more down the military motivational route, uh, oh, David nice. Goggins and the likes and just, <gasps> yeah. I know I, to- I know I told you before we started recording that uh, I signed up for the Oxfam 100, 100 kilometer trek. Uh, basically, yeah. I blame that entirely on David Goggins for having read his oh my gosh. second book recently. Uh, like so when you watch the tennis too much, then you want to be a tennis player. You're that yeah, person. Exactly. <laughs> I'm exactly that person. Um, well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, what would be great is I think you should probably share a little bit of uh, where can people find you uh, and what should they reach out about? I can obviously uh, vouch for the fact that they should reach out to you about recruitment, particularly in the world of sales and marketing. Uh, but where can people find you? How do they get in touch? So I can be found on LinkedIn. It's just Emily McLeod on LinkedIn. Otherwise, our website is www.wowrecruitment.com.au. Otherwise, you can just send me an email. It's emily at wowrecruitment.com.au. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. (laughs) No worries. Enjoy your afternoon. Bye. Bye. The Rev Up is brought to you by Trust the Process. If you're a small to medium-sized business and want to grow your business but need help to find the best people with the right skills and at the right price or you want to utilize technology to systemize your business, you can find us at www.trust.com. The process.com.au. See you next time.